Hello, I'm Ed Schnitzer of Wobble Bond Dickinson US LLP. Hi, I'm Connor Bifferato with the Bifferato Firm. We are the co-chairs of ABI's Mediation Committee. We'd like to welcome you to the committee's newest podcast, Reframing Mediation. On this and future episodes, we'll be tackling cases or bankruptcy mediation trends that we found interesting or that you should be aware of in your practice. So let's jump right in. Connor, I thought today would be a good day to talk about mediation in bad faith. What do you think? I think that's a great idea, Ed. Well, excellent. Well, let me first start start off the podcast by going over some of the rules that we probably all know well, but never hurts to repeat them. So first I'll hit the Delaware local rule. The operative Delaware local rule, which is in 1919.5, says willful failure to attend any mediation conference and any other material violation of this local rule shall be reported to the court by the mediator and may result in the imposition of sanctions by the court. Any such report of the mediator shall comply with the confidentiality requirement of local rule 9019.5, D. We have a similar rule in the Bankruptcy Court of New York. There, ADR Order Section 3.2 says a mediator shall report any willful failure to attend or participate in mediation in good faith. So that's some of the boring part, giving you giving you the rules and some background. Let's now get into the meat of this podcast. So Connor, you and I have done a lot of mediations together over the past 10 or 15 years. I've learned that you're really a nice and patient guy. You're kind of hard to frustrate, which is a good trade for a mediator. But what I want to know and what our listeners might want to know is what could cross your bad faith line? Well, Ed, thank you for those kind words. Uh, I have heard from some attorneys that my unwillingness to become frustrated or personally offended about anything that goes on in a mediation is actually a significant source of frustration for them. And they accuse me of being too easy on parties, typically meaning that I, I don't press the other side hard enough to get things done when they want me to. Uh, actually, I think I'm a fairly aggressive mediator as that goes, at least in terms of being more of a transformative mediator. But my views on good faith really have come to match up with the Delaware Supreme Court authority. And, and other states and federal courts have this uh, uh determination as well in the standard with regard to good faith in the context of third-party litigation, usually in the context of third-party insurance claim litigation, uh, the issue of good faith comes up because parties claim that an insurance company may not be dealing with them in good faith. And in reality, any party that is in a contract or uh, has some obligation born out of an agreement to another party, um, has a direct obligation to usually act in good faith in accordance with that agreement. And we'll talk about that more. And you touched on some of those issues earlier, Ed, but um, parties that are not in contract or don't have a direct agreement with one another don't really necessarily have an obligation to act in good faith toward each other, particularly when they're at odds. Uh, as they are in litigation. So unless there's a special relationship like a trustee and a beneficiary, the standard for good faith dealings is really uh, not to single out any party or class of parties 
that may be on the other side of litigation or on the other side of the dispute. So essentially, parties can't treat one party, one one type of individual in a uh, in a discriminatory or disparate way uh, as part of litigation tactics. So, for example, I, I had a mediation several years ago now in which the counsel for the defense had previously been a member of the firm of the plaintiff's representative, legal representative, and the split from that firm was really an ugly one. So the parties were really oblivious to the fact that their legal counsel had this underlying rift. The counsel for the plaintiffs really took it seriously. And the day before mediation had made an offer to settle the case at what was not an unreasonable number. As we began mediation the next day uh, in earnest, the defense counsel noted at the beginning, well, I talked to my client and they decided they really just want to accept that offer put forward by the plaintiff's counsel. And when I relayed that to the plaintiff's counsel, who was obviously in another room, they said to me, well, that was yesterday and today we want that settlement number X plus $50,000. And, you know, oftentimes in mediation edit, and I think that, you know, you and I have had situations like this where a lawyer will tell a party, I'm willing to settle for, let's say, $100,000. But if we start mediation, it's going to cost you $100,000 plus whatever the cost of mediation is, and maybe just an additional $50,000 because you forced me to, to litigate. That was not the situation here. This was a situation in which the plaintiff's lawyer was clearly trying to embarrass the defense attorney in front of their client because they had the ability to settle at any number at any time and they wanted to use that leverage specifically for the purpose of embarrassing another attorney that that's the only time and that's the closest i've come to ever feeling like a party was behaving in bad faith and that was essentially to single out their opposition because of who they were as opposed to the fact that they were two parties in a dispute. Does, it, does that make sense? No, def, definitely. And I can tell you, well, not this situation, but it's it's certainly embarrassing when you think you have a settlement proposal from another side, you bring it to your client, you get your client on board with it, you go back and you say, great, we have a deal. If the other side were to then come and say, no, we're no longer offering that, that's, uh, you know, as you said, it's it's embarrassing. And if it done, if it's if it's a mistake, so be it. Everybody makes a mistake. But if it's done intentionally to embarrass the other attorney, that's um, that's not OK. It, that, yeah. And I think that that's really the, the that's a uh, maybe a, a little bit too complicated uh, description of what the courts mean when they talk about third party good faith obligations. And, and it but it boils down to if it if you're dealing with the other party as you would deal with anybody in a dispute. Really, it's hard to commit bad faith or behave in bad faith in the mediation context because your obligations in mediation really are to show up and listen, maybe respond, and to 
and the mediation when it's appropriate to do so. But there's nothing that I've seen typically in any rule or or standard consideration or description of mediation that says that a party has to make an offer to settle or that a party has to be willing to accept a proposal to settle at any given number or range. They can come in and leave with the same position and still behave in good faith. So so what happened in that mediation where the attorney did that? Did anything uh, further transpire? Did you take any action? Well, I, that was the first time I've ever actually said, um, and I did say to the plaintiff's attorney, I think that you're behaving in bad faith because you and I both know that at the beginning of this mediation, you were willing to settle for the same number that you told the plaintiff's attorney the day before. And the only reason that you're not doing that now is because of your personal animus towards the lawyer for the defense. Um, that sort of, as you would imagine, led to a, a breakdown of trust among the parties and the mediator. Uh, and we concluded the mediation. But what ultimately happened is before I filed a report with the court indicating that mediation was concluded and the result, the plaintiff's counsel ultimately reached out to defense counsel, accepted the original offer, and the case went away. So I never had to include in a report, and I have not yet to this day included in a report that a party behaved in bad faith. Well, wow. You know, that's that's quite a factual scenario you had and, you know, not even a made up hypothetical, um, you know, and, 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 you know, to be clear for our audience, you know, that wasn't me. I have, I have, I have not yet crossed, uh, uh, I haven't crossed the line with you at least not yet, but you know, we'll, we'll have mediations in the future. So I, I may, I may have to, you know, try harder. Um, you know, with that in mind, you know, let me give you some hypotheticals and, you know, these aren't entirely made up as they come from some cases that I've seen. I may have altered them slightly. But I want to see, you know, get your thoughts and, and what you think you would do. So let me give you the first one, um, which perhaps is the you know easiest one. I attend a mediation. My client representative is with me. And I tell you at the mediation, no, we are not going to settle. Our demand in the complaint is our offer. And we see no basis to settle or go a penny below that. We stay at the mediation, but we don't change our position. What do you do? Well, it's, that's an interesting situation and, and one that's not really all that uncommon. And if you were dealing with most mediation rules that I've seen or come across in, in Delaware and, and I would say New York as well, although I don't want to suggest I'm an expert in the rules in New York, uh, as well as most orders issued by courts to participate in mediation, the party that showed up and said, hey, the demand in my complaint is the number I want and that's the number I'm sticking to, um, would not be behaving in good faith. They, it might be an irritating thing for the other side to hear. Um, the other side probably came with the intention of, well, I'll offer something, maybe half or a percentage of what the plaintiff was demanding. Uh, and when they keep hearing, no, it's, it's the number in my complaint, they get frustrated and they pound the table and they obviously pretty frequently, as as you know, throw out the words, hey, the other side's behaving in bad faith. Well, in my opinion, they're not. What do you say? No, I, you know, I, I, I agree with you. And I think you hit upon a couple of good points there. You know, frustration is probably 
the key word in terms of mediation can be very frustrating if you're one side and you don't feel like the other side is making a movement, but at the same time, they're not required to. And so at the end of the day, if the matter is not going to settle, um, so be it. It's 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 probably a litigation, although maybe it's a pre-litigation that will then turn into a litigation. And at the end of the day, you know, a judge or jury will make that decision. That decision, but just because a party attended mediation, whether voluntarily or not entirely voluntarily, doesn't mean they have to. You know, you know, they settle. So no, I one hundred percent, you know, one hundred percent agree with you. But definitely, the frustration part is it's it's hard. Because, you know, the, the, if you want to call it the sell for mediation that I think we both do when you try to, you know, convince people that mediation is a good idea is the potential for a settlement that both sides will benefit from in some way. And then when the mediation doesn't work out that way because one party's, you know, unwilling to, to move, it's frustrating or depressing or irritating or annoying. Any of those any of those ing words you know we can think of but what it what it most likely is not with just those facts is it's not bad faith i i agree i think you you hit on it exactly the the only thing mandatory or the only thing that should be mandatory about mediation is to show up and to participate so if they listened each time to the number and consistently said no 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 that's that's not bad faith Definitely agree with you. I think the other thing that's you know that that it made me think of from 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 what you said, two parts is one. I think we agree that it's definitely a party's right either to not back off their demand or if the 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 defense to not offer a penny. But do you think that's in general a wise approach from either side? Well, I, and I think that we could probably and maybe we should consider uh, a whole podcast on what do you do when you have a client that's a problem and you're at mediation and you know from your experience, maybe 30 years of experience in practicing law, that it's in the client's best interest to uh, to try to get to a resolution. Um, it, I had I had very, uh, I, and, I, and I, I probably would have to think very hard to think of a case in which it was better to proceed with litigation than it was to find a resolution in advance because what clients always forget is that even if they think that they're proceeding on a principle that they're going to prove to the court, the courts never, at the end of the day, juries, judges, however the decision is made, are going to say, hey, you were right for standing on that principle and spending three years in litigation and God knows how much money and taking up all kinds of time from the court that could have been spent on other things, maybe uh, criminal criminal rights issues and trials. Uh, so we're, we're glad that you did that and you've proved your point. Know that the only thing the courts ever do is say, is there liability? Yes or no. And if it's yes, how much money is associated with that liability? But they never restore that feeling of, I was wrong. It's never made right by litigation. No, that's a good point. So a, really, a win, so to speak, isn't really going to be a win anyway. So if you can get to a similar result in a monetary perspective, 
but a lot sooner and without the attendant, you know, cost and time, that arguably is a better way. That's, that's my perspective. And it's the most important thing I think for mediators when you're thinking about mediation in that context is to make sure that the party feels aggrieved and is unwilling to uh, engage feels like they're being heard because that's 99% of what they want when they want to go to court. They want a third party besides their lawyer to hear them say they understand and talk about those issues long enough for them to feel like they've expressed themselves in a court-like setting. No, exactly. And I think that actually gives me another thing that I thought of is you know, at mediation, if a party is not willing to move, what they still can do is advocate. And that in of itself can can be useful, can be useful for their client to hear it said, even if it's just to the mediator or if it's in a joint session with everybody. And also it could be persuasive. It's possible you could come in in a non, in a position where you don't want to compromise and you could convince the other side, in theory, to come if not at exactly your position, but a lot closer to it because maybe you're actually right. Exactly. It, and a, a forum in which parties can have those direct communications is, um, I think, an opportunity that parties often don't realize they're not going to have if they, they force an issue to go to the court before a judge or a jury. Very true. And the last thing I wanted to mention before I hit you with another hypothetical is you know, you mentioned that attorneys will come to you and be like, hey, the other side, you know, that schnitzer guy is, you know, engaged in bad faith. Um, of course, they wouldn't say schnitzer, but, you know, <laughs> engaged in bad faith because, you know, they're not moving. And I suppose it, it occurs to me that that's kind of like a sword that someone's trying to use. And it kind of puts you in a tough situation or not just you, but any mediator, because you're almost you're you're almost being asked to take off your neutral hat. Is, is that is that how you feel? I, I think you're exactly right. I think anytime a party asks a mediator to uh, step out of the role of being entirely neutral and make a, quote, decision about what's happening in the mediation or what's happening through the conduct of one party or another, they've asked the mediator to move from a role of being a mediator to being either some type of advocate or decision maker which is really sort of the opposite of mediation and and really why mediators should never or try as hard as they can to avoid the suggestion that one party or another behaved in some fashion that affected the mediation that 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 affects confidentiality as we talked about that that affects all aspects of the mediation and it I don't think it does the torts any favors either it also sounds like from, you know, the first example you gave about what happened in that case, you know, once you, you know, said the words bad faith, it's, it unfortunately is counterproductive to the mediation succeeding because once you've said it, almost by definition, the other side is now going to be adverse to you. Like if they thought you were neutral before and being fair, that's now most likely out the window. And even if they are engaged in bad faith, it's still out the window because now you're calling them on it. So at that point, the mediation, the chance of the mediation succeeding in, in, in having the parties come to a resolution 
is probably very unlikely. So it seems like if one party thinks that having you accuse the other side of bad faith will actually help make the mediation productive, that's probably not true. It's probably going to do the reverse. You're exactly right. It Anytime a mediator, you know, if one party asks a mediator to say, well, if you think they're in bad faith, I do too. I really want you to go and tell them that so that maybe they'll come around to considering my offer or demand a little bit more reasonably. You're exactly right. As soon as you walk into the room and say, you know, I wonder if you're acting in good faith by not really considering what the other side is saying. The other, the party who you say that to, as you said, is immediately going to believe that you've lost your neutrality, is immediately going to view you as an adversary or an advocate for their adversary. And the the chances of getting anything done with them are out the window. And in that one situation that you mentioned where I did say that, it was pretty much already done that way because that lawyer, he knew, he was saying to me, he was asking me to do something that I thought was inappropriate and using me uh, to to sort of advance a, a, a really petty kind of thing. And, and so I think when you put the mediator in a situation of feeling used, it's it sort of defeats the uh, the purpose of the process. Right. No, exactly. So, well, let's go on to our second hypothetical. And this is almost the opposite of the of the first one, or at least I think it is. But you'll tell me your thoughts. So here I attend a mediation. We reach a settlement at the mediation. The terms are discussed. We even go one step further. We do, you know, a term sheet, a written term sheet that has, you know, the five, you know, major points of the settlement. Then a settlement agreement is circulated, which has exactly those terms in it. But obviously, it has those other, you know, those other standard things you see in a in a, in, in a settlement agreement. But nothing, but nothing substantive. The other side, you know, sends that to me. I give it to my client, and my client refuses to sign. And you know, now the other side comes to you. What do you think? Yeah, that's that's a challenge. I, I think it it starts to get into what we touched on a little bit at the beginning, and that is there are there's the mediation process itself. And then there is, or are, I should say, the rules or the court order or the signed agreement that the parties entered into before mediation that govern how the mediation is going to happen and what's going to happen usually at the conclusion of mediation. So the mediator's responsibility is to try and facilitate the party's discussions and help them to get to a resolution, maybe challenge their perspectives as to whether or not they're they're really thinking as objectively as they could be. And it's very hard to do that as an advocate and as a litigant. But once you've gotten to a resolution and the mediation is concluded, um, it's natural to think you should go back to the mediator and say, hey, why won't they sign this? But the, the reality is the mediator doesn't have any authority to tell a party that they need to sign something. However, it they have entered into a an agreement and probably by refusing to sign have violated the rule or the order or the agreement that led to the mediation. And that's that's the likely source to uh, to enforce that agreement. And and I think that you had found and it did, your research suggested 
the courts agree and that a refusal to follow through on an agreement reached in mediation is, uh, if, if not bad faith, it, it, it's behavior that the courts find sanctionable. Yeah, no, no you're, you know, you're exactly right. I had found two cases that address this. They went different. They got to a similar result of sorts in terms of the party not signing the settlement agreement was, was, the, was the bad actor, but they got there different ways. One found that it was bad faith. And I liked what the court said because it, 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 it connects to our first hypothetical. The court said, to be clear, the court is not sanctioning the defendants for a failure to come to agreement. Rather, it's the refusal to memorialize the agreement that they actually reached along with their pre and post mediation conduct informs the court's decision. So the court made clear, like we discussed in the first hypothetical, you don't have to reach an agreement at mediation. You can not reach an agreement. But if you do reach an agreement at mediation, you got to follow through. Otherwise, that is not okay. That's what one court did. The other decision I found a court, basically the motion before the court was to compel the other party to go forward with the settlement agreement. And the court agreed. And the court did, you know, perhaps you know, the best result, because of finding a bad faith doesn't necessarily help you if you're the party who, you know, wants the settlement to go forward. What you really want is you want the deal that you spent, you know, eight hours, 10 hours, 36 hours at mediation negotiating. You spent the time, you got the deal, you even did a term sheet. You, you, you want to be done with it. The bad faith is, is, is like a bump in the road. You, you just want to be done. Right. That, that's, and that's it. It's what, what's happening in particularly the second case that you mentioned that the the court addressed is you're as a as the advocate on behalf of the party who's trying to push the deal to get done you're you're going to the court and saying it your honor or or whatever the the body is enforce the order that you enter or enforce your rules that require parties participating in mediation to comply with the agreements that they've reached or to uh, fulfill the obligations of participants in mediation by order or by rule. And, and that's that the, the courts obviously are not invading in that situation, the confidentiality or the discussions or forcing the mediator to disclose anything. All they're doing is enforcing their rule or their court order. Let me bounce that back to you and ask you a hypothetical, Ed. What would happen in that situation if party who was refusing to sign the agreement also said, no, 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 I don't think we reached agreement on these terms. Uh, I, I think that, in fact, we both thought that the the amount at issue was uh, in the bank account was $75,000, and it turned out with interest, it was actually 100000 And so we both were operating under a mistake of fact. And so I'm not going to comply with that agreement. No, look, an, an interesting issue, you know, brings me back to, you know, contract law, first year in law school. And the question is, kind of, did you have a meeting of the minds? And if you didn't have a meeting of the minds, uh, you know, mis- you know, then then perhaps you don't. Uh, you know, in, in terms of a practice pointer, what I've learned, you know, a while ago after uh, n- not doing it this way originally, which which, you know, could cause some could cause some, you know, angst later. I've learned to definitely do a term sheet at a mediation, not end the mediation, whether I'm the mediator or whether I'm a party. It matters to me more if I'm a party, honestly, because if I'm a party, I want the settlement to go through. If I'm a mediator, 
you know, yeah, I'd like it to go through, but I, I don't I don't care because I don't represent anybody personally. But I've learned to definitely do a term sheet because people's memory can be different. You might not be able to read your handwriting later. But if you do a term sheet that both attorneys and or their clients sign and use Xerox and, you know, both parties walk away with the same sheet of paper, it's a lot harder to have a misunderstanding later. I've even in some situations, and it depends on, you know, where the mediation is and your access to computer and whatnot. I've sometimes actually done a settlement agreement right there and then I'll often, if let's say it's a, it's a preference matter and there are lots of preference, you know, actions, I'll bring a form settlement agreement that really just needs the name of the party put in, how much money somebody is paying and whether a claim's being waived and when's the money due. Everything else in a preference settlement agreement is kind of, you know, set in stone. So I'll bring that with me. And if we don't have a computer, we can literally just handwrite in that information. If we have a computer and a printer, we can actually type it in, you know, ask the mediator if we can, you know, use a printer in, you know, his or her office, print it right there and get it all side up. That way, when everybody's memory is real fresh, they know exactly what they're agreeing to then. And that way there's no, there's no second thoughts later. So yeah, I mean, that's my best suggestion to avoid the fact of, you know, someone didn't realize, you know, how much money they were talking about. But I think in your hypothetical, if there was, if that wasn't discussed at the mediation and, and not put in a term sheet or a draft settlement agreement, I think then perhaps there was, you know, no meaning of the minds um, when, when they agreed to, let's say, turn over the money in the bank account. If one party thought it was 75, but it was actually 100, then they probably didn't have an actual agreement. Right. It, that's the difficulty in it. It raises issues of um, is the mediator ever subject to being called as a witness? And I fortunately, I don't think there's a case out there in which that has happened. Uh, but it is critically important, as you say, to finish a mediation with an agreement, uh, a term sheet. Um, I, I definitely have seen parties bring written agreements. In fact, um, before I was mediating a lot, I was litigating a lot. A mediator who I think is one of the best out there in Delaware um, from the court, and now he, he's, he, he subsequently went on the bench in the court of chancery and then has come off and is mediating again, requires parties that come to mediation to bring with them a form settlement agreement, both sides. And when I've talked to him about that, his reasoning is, as you just indicated, at the end of the day, he wants them to leave with a document that nails down all those terms. But another issue is he wants those parties thinking really hard about what a settlement would look like before they even come into mediation. And they've got to do that when they put together what a settlement sheet, settlement agreement would look like. Well, let's move on. I think we have time for maybe one more hypothetical. So this is another kind of, I think, cut and dry one, but I'm going to propose it anyway, just so I can consider consider my options for future mediations with you. Um, I schedule a mediation with you. We agree on a date. The date comes. I show up at your offices for the mediation. My client doesn't. You ask me where my client is. I say, I have no idea. And, you know, I've got no excuse and clients were required to attend in person. What do you do? Well, that's that, that again brings up the, uh, the question of conduct and 
is it governed by the actual mediation process and is is the mediator the um the neutral or the party that's going to make a decision about whether the lawyer who shows up without a client participant is acting in bad faith or that client is acting in bad faith by not showing up uh the answer is, is probably yes that client who didn't show up has done something inappropriate but the mediator again should all, all costs try to avoid being the one that makes a determination and hopefully there is a rule that says that as you indicated in this case it says that a, a party participant must be at the mediation with authority to settle um and in that case you can go to the court and the other party could go to the court and say your honor this, this lawyer for ABC showed up without a representative and assuming the lawyer is going to tell the truth, um, then they can proceed and again against the other side based on uh, the rule or the order that govern the conduct of the mediation and that required a party participant to be there. I'll also say that one thing that I do not think breaches confidentiality is uh, I do think mediators can file a report with a board, particularly where they're required to do so, that indicates that a mediation occurred and who was at the mediation. Typically, the identity of people who are at mediation or not at mediation is is not a confidential component of mediation. But but that's an interesting issue too. What are your thoughts, Ed? No, and I'm glad you brought me data report because I was just thinking that as well, particularly because it relates to your view of, of which I agree with and which I think most rules agree with too, that a mediator basically cannot be required to testify. A mediator report is a quasi-testimony in, in a way because a mediator is then reporting who was there and then by definition, you know, who who was not there. But I think, I think why that's different is because it's objective and that brings me to kind of my second thought as to why I think this hypothetical is kind of an easier one. And, and, and courts have ruled exactly that way in multiple cases because it's objective. It's not a question of somebody bargaining their authority, how long were the, the, they were at the mediation, whether they were obnoxious. You know, none of those things come into play. Either you were there or you weren't. So it's really, it's a yes, no question. It's black and white. There's, there's nothing in between. So it's kind of simple, much like the mediator report. You're not saying, you know, this person was there, but was kind of a jerk or this person was there, but, you know, refused to negotiate. You're just saying this person was there and this person wasn't there. And if that violates, you know, the, the court order, uh, you know, or the core rules as to a client, you know, attending the mediation in person, um, you know, then then so be it. I, I think where I guess it could get complicated is where you could have a client through their lawyer making arguments like, oh, I didn't realize the mediation was that day. Um, you know, it was it, it wasn't set. And then you'd have a situation where you are getting a little bit into a he said, she said, you know, type of situation. And then then you're going to get into questions of whether 
you know, the parties to the action are putting into evidence, I guess, the emails with the mediator setting forth the day of the mediation and what to do. And it certainly gets complicated. I know in some cases what I've done, and I don't do this all the time, and maybe I should, but it sounds a little overkill, is I'll file a notice with the court stating that this mediation has been scheduled for, you know, August 30th at 4 p.m. in the afternoon. So that way it's really hard for somebody later to say, I had no idea the mediation was scheduled for August 30th at four in the morning because my answer is, did you see the notice that you were served with and that was filed on the docket and for which you got e-notice of? But like I said, I don't, I don't, that's not part of my regular practice, I guess, because it seems overkill, overbearing. I don't know. What have you seen people do in that regard? I actually think that's a good idea. I, I, I haven't typically done that. And I can't think of a situation in which I have, but really just because I haven't thought of it. But it's not a bad idea just to file a notice that says that a mediation is scheduled in the date and time, particularly if there's a court order that that may be a standard court order and it just has a slot that says mediation has to be filled by or concluded by, and then there's a blank date. So sometimes it's a, you're you know you're protecting the parties by putting on the docket so the court knows that it's been scheduled and you're you're meeting the deadline in the court's scheduling order. Um, but with regard to the the rest of the excuses, et cetera, that's the good thing about mediator just filing objective facts is just to say, uh, you know, lawyer A was there with their client and lawyer B was there and the case didn't settle. Period. And and from there, lawyer A can go to the court and say, hey, Your Honor, you see this notice? There's somebody's name missing, and that's the party that was supposed to show up with lawyer B, and it violates the order. And then if lawyer B wants to make the excuse, well, my client didn't know, I didn't tell them, I failed to notify them, or they were sick or something like that, the, the mediator's not getting involved with providing that information. It's all tell to the judge. No, exactly. That makes sense. Well, you know what, Connor, as usual, I think this was a great discussion. Um, I think we've definitely covered a lot, lot, lots of topics. Hopefully people enjoyed the conversation and, and we didn't get into too much uh, detail. Um, I can't wait to uh, reconnect to spotlight more issues on our Reframing podcast. Thank you to our audience. This podcast series and an archive of nearly 300 other ABI podcasts can be found in the newsroom at abi.org. Until next time, have a great day.